and welcome back to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I'm actually kind of excited about this, people, because what I'm going to be doing today, this is something that, ladies and gentlemen, I dare not exaggerate, this is something that I've wanted to do since literally day one of this podcast. And what I wanted to do literally since day one of this podcast, is do an episode about Wizard Magazine. But the original idea that I had, what I was, what I was sort of kicking around, was this idea of basically talking about the entire history of Wizard sort of all at once. You know, basically doing kind of a, a fire and forget, one and done sort of episode where... I didn't necessarily get into the the nitty-gritty of Wizard. I, I basically just wanted to talk about it as a phenomenon. But things have a funny... Especially if you're a podcaster, right? Things have sort of a funny way of mutating and changing and shifting. And what your idea was originally could be something very different by the time you actually finally start recording it. So, podcasting pro tip, I suppose. But where the rubber meets the road on this is, it was, uh, I want to say it was probably three, maybe four weeks ago, something like that. Basically, my parents let me know that they they were cleaning out their storage shed, which basically meant that they were really cleaning out my storage shed since it was mostly just my stuff that was in there and so the attitude seemed to be basically one of well come on down here and get your stuff because otherwise it's going in the dumpster right well guys it had been in there for so long I didn't even completely know or remember what was even in there anymore so as much as anything this was sort of like a treasure trove for me you know so, whatever happened, happened. I cleaned, cleaned the, the, the uh, place out. And as I started digging through all this stuff and sorting through different boxes and whatnot, I opened up this, this one box that had uh, a bunch of old back issues of Wizard. Well, I guess back issues of Wizard. Maybe that's sort of redundant. Uh, these are like vintage issues of Wizard. I don't mean any of that 2000s era crap. I mean, this stuff is straight from the 90s, people. And there was one issue in particular that I thought, I don't know how this is going to relate with that Wizard episode that I want to do. And I honestly, I still really don't. But I for sure wanted to talk about this particular issue of Wizard. And specifically, this is Wizard number 44. And the cover date as well as the spine date, is April of 1995. Now, if you're looking at this cover, you can pretty well figure what my interest in in this particular uh, issue of Wizard might have been. Namely, that this cover features, without the fold-out, it basically features three members of Gen 13, Fairchild, Rainmaker, and Freefall. And... I don't think I've made any secret of the fact that I was a huge Gen 13 fan when I was a kid. You know, back when those issues were coming out, 
Gen 13 was one of the few Image Comics that I was able to collect on something that might be mistaken for a regular basis. And so, honestly, I tried to pick up a you know Wizard whenever I could. But in particular, this issue was a priority. And so, I must say, the issue did not disappoint. Now, one of the things that I always sort of liked about Wizard is that Maybe you like whatever is featured on the cover, and maybe you don't. But in general, this was this was generally a a magazine that was well worth buying if you're a comic book fan, right? Now, I'm familiar with the joke that Wizard is basically Reddit before there ever really was such a thing, and ha ha ha, I guess. I don't know. Maybe it's all nostalgia nostalgia that's that's talking here not actually really sure but it's this has just been a sensation that I've been struggling with or at least dealing with for I would say maybe the last year or so I mean like what is this what what is that what am I feeling right now and it, it, it's kind of hard to describe I mean I almost want to compare it to or for that matter even label it as a midlife crisis because let's face it I can't really afford a Corvette but damn it I can afford to open up a box of my old junk and start digging through old issues of Wizard but I've just been on this serious 90s sort of kick lately as might be evident from the fact that it really wasn't all that long ago that I finished up as a mega series that was all about specifically the early 90s early offerings of Image Comics and just how much affection for those comics that I have, even today. Even today. I'm, that has not really been tamped down. And as a matter of fact, I might even be so bold as to say that, if anything, my affection for the initial offerings of Image, it's actually only... It's really only become more potent over the years just because... The comic book industry is just such a clusterfuck. It's, I mean, for years, you know, we've had all this SJW nonsense and agenda mongering and, and all this other stuff. And in the main, I mean, I can't sit here and tell you that every single comic book that, that was published throughout the entirety of the 90s was completely free of an agenda or anything like that, because that is just a fucking retarded thing to say but it's like at the same time by and large what comics wanted to do back in the 90s was be not even not even necessarily be fun what they wanted was to be cool you know they abided by the rule of cool and this is just a really cool cover and to kind of tie it all back to the subject at hand this is a really cool cover I'm a J. Scott Campbell, uh, pardon me, I'm a J. Scott Campbell fanboy from way back. There, there has never been a day when I, when I woke up in the morning and thought to myself, you know, gee, I really hate J. Scott Campbell as an artist. That, those words have never escaped my lips. Uh, I guess until I just set them on mic to say that they've never escaped my lips, but whatever. 
Those words have never escaped my lips. The, that thought has never formed in my mind. And as a matter of fact, I think J. Scott Campbell is the rare breed of artist that gets better. Every time he draws something, he gets a little bit better. And I think that begins in the first issue of the Gen 13 miniseries, and then it just goes right on through, all the way through his entire career. Every single thing that he draws, in my mind, is just noticeably, noticeably better than the last thing he drew. He's one of the few artists whose tweaks to his style and his growth actually benefit him. Because I think we're all, at this point, we're all sort of familiar with that artist that, well... Time has not been kind to them, shall we say. And I truly don't think that's a problem for J. Scott Campbell. The, this is the first issue of the Gen 13 miniseries. That was good. The, the next issue was better. The third issue was better. The fourth issue was better. It's just so on and so on and so on. And so, yes, you can recognize that this stuff was all drawn by the same guy. But you... you it, I don't think you're really being honest if you don't acknowledge the fact that the growth here that that he demonstrates the the um, the improvements in just first of all his line style but also the more uh, like the fundamentals I guess of of illustration where you do tell the story visually I mean this is a visual medium and yes things need to look cool but there's also there is a way to tell the story visually that, yeah, I mean, you're still going to probably need some kind of dialogue balloon or you're still going to need some kind of thought balloon or, or, or just whatever. But generally speaking, you can still follow a story just looking at the art. If it's done well, there is a way to do that. And I think Campbell is one of those artists who is getting better and better at the fundamental stuff as well. So it's not just that he has a cool line style, although he does, but it's also that this is just objectively good storytelling. So anyway, so I think that should pretty much, um, well, almost cover it for the cover. Uh, the only other thing that I want to mention here is, like a lot of wizard covers, this is actually a fold-out. So you open it up and just swing the uh, the second flap on out. And so, yeah, the main part of the cover that you would see if this thing is just sitting on the newsstand, you would see Fairchild, Rainmaker, and Freefall. And it's like they're doing this sort of uh, photo shoot, like a modeling photo shoot. You swing out the flap, and what you see is uh, Garib Seamus, the head honcho from Wizard. And you realize he's the guy that's actually sort of managing the shoot. While Grunge, Burnout, and Lynch, they're all being kept off of the set, the photo set, by a big, burly-looking security guard. And it's just, it's kind of a funny, it's a funny illustration, but, I don't know, you can, maybe you can extrapolate some commentary out of all of this if you want, that it's Garib Seamus who is keeping the men off the cover and and making the cover just so boobalicious and all that. So, I don't know. If you want to, you can. So, obviously, I flipped through this thing before recording this episode just now. I kind of... Not really. I mean, I, I, I'm just going to be honest with you guys. I basically picked out two things in 
in, in this issue, well, I guess depending on how you look at it, three things, but two things in this issue that I really want to talk about. And then after that, I'm just going to flip through this thing one page at a time. And we're going to just kind of see where this episode goes. So this could be a really epic episode or this could be a really short episode. I'm not really too sure. But anyway, where I want to start, this is on page uh, 72. This is a story or a feature, really. This is a feature. It's an interview with, with Chuck Dixon of, at this point, entirely too many comics to ever hope to count. And... This is one of the things that Wizard would do pretty often, and I would say very well, is, yeah, there's the price guide. Yeah, you got boobalicious covers. And yeah, you know, you've, you've got all of these wacky photo contests and all these other sorts of things. But over and above all that stuff, the, the features, which is to say the articles in Wizard, are actually really well done, really, uh, really well written, and... In this particular case, I already knew who Chuck Dixon was, all right? Because, I, you know, I, I, as I said earlier in, in this episode, I'm a Gen 13 fanboy from way back. But I'm a Batman fanboy from even farther back. And it was pretty much impossible to collect Batman comics in the early 90s, as I did, without learning the name Chuck Dixon. You are just, there's no way around it. You will know who Chuck Dixon is if you collect Batman comics and it's 1993, you know? There's just no way around that. But it, it obviously, it's not always Chuck Dixon. There, sometimes it might be John Byrne, or other times it might be Jim Shooter, or other times, it, you know, it, my point is, it could be any of a number of different people, some of whom... I was familiar with, but others of whom maybe I wasn't. And so this could be uh, an opportunity to familiarize myself with comic book talents from, shall we say, bygone ages, basically from the past. And so it's through stuff like that that maybe I glom on to creators like Keith Giffen or Dave Cockrum or or just fucking whoever, you know, uh, Paul Smith, you know, just these these creators that were at least off of my beaten path. And so this was an opportunity to discover them, learn about their history, their work, and all of that stuff. And so obviously for this issue, Wizard number 44, again, April 1995, this was, well or one of the features in, in this issue, this is about Chuck Dixon. And I don't want to go through this entire feature sort of point by point, because, or, or for that matter, page by page, just because I think that would be kind of boring. But I do want to touch upon at least a few elements of this. Obviously, I'm a huge Batman fan, so that's the part, especially when I was a kid, that stood out to me. So let's just go ahead and tackle that aspect. Because, again, it was impossible to be a Batman comic book collector in the early 90s without knowing who Chuck Dixon is. Well, if it's the mid-90s and you're doing an interview for Wizard Magazine with Chuck Dixon, you pretty much, sooner or later, you have to at least mention Bane in passing. And so 
as you can imagine, there's going to be there's going to be sort of an an element of that. So, oh, and hey, look at this. There's a he even makes a couple of remarks about the Punisher. Mm. You know what? I may I I do know that I want to talk about the Chuck Dixon run on the Punisher. So I don't know. Maybe I'll revisit this when if and when I ever talk about Chuck Dixon's Punisher work on this show. But anyway, anyway, anyway. <clears throat> the the writer says to Chuck Dixon, he says, I get the impression you feel your whole life was leading up to the opportunity to write Batman. And Dixon re- responds to that. Writing Batman to me was like a was like dreaming of becoming a rock star. It was a complete fantasy. I never even thought of trying to write Batman. I figured I got the Punisher. I'm happy. I don't need anything else. And then I got the first Robin miniseries, and that was my road in. I love Batman. Interviewer says, why were you chosen to write Robin? Dixon responds, Batman editor Denny O'Neill chose me based on Airboy because I'd written a young character. Nobody expected the first miniseries to sell as well as it did. They underestimated how much people wanted Robin back. And I'm going to put this little interview on pause and say, I'm not sure if I completely agree with that. There, it, At this point, it may actually be sort of like heresy to say that you prefer Batman stories that don't include Robin in any way whatsoever. I get the idea to, that in modern Batman fandom, that's maybe not heresy, but that's certainly not the majority opinion. But guys... Back in the 90s, that was not true. There were a ton of people who voted to kill off Jason Todd and were fucking happy they did it. They would do it again if they could. They believed that Batman was at his best working as a loner. And it's, look, it's well and good that Batman has this history with Dick Grayson. Dick Grayson was Robin for a while, but Dick Grayson grew out of that. He became Nightwing and then he kind of lived his own life, separate and apart from Bruce, and really that's where Robin should have ended. This was something that Batman did to help Dick, but Robin really shouldn't be a fixture in Batman's life. That was a, that was that that was not necessarily fanboy orthodoxy in early to mid 90s or i would i would say really probably more late 80s to uh to mid 90s batman fandom that was not necessarily fanboy orthodoxy but it was a very fucking common opinion guys i honestly cannot remember going to the going to my lcs more than more than once at most twice without hearing somebody talking about Batman, and you could very well, well, I can't say be certain, but you could lay money on the on the probability that at least one person involved in that conversation was going to say words to the effect of, I think Batman works better alone. And all of this is a really long way of setting the table on specifically Tim Drake. And the fact is, the first Robin miniseries sold like fucking gangbusters. And I don't think it's so much the name Robin. I mean, I'm sure that helped. But I don't think it's necessarily the name Robin that propelled the first Robin miniseries so much as it was specifically Tim Drake. Because if you look at the creators uh, on the book, 
these were people that either you didn't know, such as Chuck Dixon. I mean, yeah, he'd written Green Hornet, but who the fuck read Green or- the, the Green Hornet? Or yeah, he 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 wrote Airboy, but who the fuck read Airboy? So Chuck Dixon at that time, he was not a superstar, and he certainly had little to no cred with Batman fans. So there's that. Then there's Tom Lyle. Now, Tom Lyle probably had more of a rep among Batman fans than Chuck Dixon did at that time. This I do affirm. But it's like at the same time, Tom Lyle, he was never, as far as I know, on anybody's hot artist list. I mean, he, 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 look, Tom Lyle, he was a great artist. He was a... But he, at the same time, he was kind of a workman artist, I would say. He didn't have this super flashy style. He, he was just, I think, a very meat and potatoes, very talented and effective storyteller. But I, I, I think, yeah, I'm not trying to speak ill of the dead here or anything, but I think we're not really being honest with the man's legacy if we say that he was some kind of Jim Lee tier superstar artist. Because to, to the best of my knowledge, Tom Lyle never was. I mean, I'm sure he had fans, but he wasn't exactly Eric Larson or, or Todd McFarlane or someone like that. He just, he had fans, that's it. So whatever it was that, that propelled Robin, the first Robin miniseries to the top of the charts, it wasn't the superstar talent that was making the book. This we all know. And I don't think that there was such pent up demand that Robin come back in some form or another, that that alone would have made the first Robin miniseries starring anybody a smash hit. No, my friends, I submit to you that what made the first Robin miniseries just such a breakout, out of left field, uh, sleeper hit was the fact that Batman, the, the Batman family of titles had been so careful and so deliberate in terms of spending like a year and a half or better positioning Tim Drake to become Robin that at the moment that he finally did, the fans were fucking ready, all right? They were up for the game. They were in Robin jerseys in a big, bad way. They wanted to see Tim Drake become Robin because they'd, they'd spent time getting to know Tim, and I think they understood that Tim was going to be a very different kind of Robin. He was going to be different from Dick Grayson, and he was going to be different yet from Jason Todd. And I think the, the fans understood that, and they were very interested to see what was coming. And so I think I'm going to have to disagree a little bit with Chuck Dixon, because guys, this is one of those times when I think... I'm within my rights to disagree with a creator. I mean, this is the guy that wrote the fucking book. And so there is a sense in which it's like, okay, well, Ginger, who are you to go against the creator of the book? Well, the creator of the book is making commentary about fans, y'all. And in this particular case, I think Chuck Dixon, at least in whatever, whenever it was in 1995 that he granted this interview, I think he was mistaken. I think that what made the first Robin miniseries such a hit, like I say, it wasn't the superstar talent that was that, that was creating, you know, the superstar team that was creating the book, because they weren't superstars. And it wasn't 
Robin per se that made the book such a success, as seems to have been Chuck Dixon's opinion. For me, speaking as somebody who bought the fucking miniseries, the reason I bought it, it wasn't because it said Robin on the cover, it's because it had Tim Drake on the inside pages as Robin. And I've been, like I say, guys, I'm not trying to beat this to death, but I was seriously fucking stoked to see Tim Drake finally, finally become Robin. Now, <clears throat> excuse me while I get a, <clears throat> while I get a drink off of uh, the official beverage of Trinus Magnus Punch's reality. This is orange vanilla Coke. So good. I just love that stuff. And you know what? I've been uh, sitting here running my mouth for, at this point, over 20 minutes. So I'm going to get some vapor here. Anyway, so that's basically where I'm coming from with Tim Drake as Robin. And so I'm, 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 when it comes to what it was that made the first Robin miniseries just such a hit, and it was a hit, what made it such a hit, I'm afraid I'm going to have to disagree. And in this case, it's Chuck Dixon, so uh, I guess I respectfully disagree that it was Robin in some kind of abstract sense that made that book such a hit. No, I think it, at least for me, for my participation and, you know, the people that I've, that I talked to who were collecting comics at that time. And I would say even people that I've talked to about comics in the intervening years for them. And for me, it all comes back to Tim Drake. So with all due respect, Chuck Dixon, as if he's listening, but with all due respect, Mr. Dixon, I think I'm going to have to disagree with you a little bit on that. So anyway, again, respectful disagreement, but still disagreement. So anyway, getting back into the feature, uh, the interviewer, the interviewer asks, because Chuck Dixon just said they underestimated how much people wanted Robin back. And so the interviewer counters that with, especially considering how many fans had voted to kill off Tim Drake's predecessor as Robin, Jason Todd. And Dixon answers that. He says, I think that's the point. It was Jason Todd that they were killing, not Robin. Jason Todd was a character who got away from them, and they could just never get it back. When I took over, I already had the basis from Marv Wolfman and Alan Grant that Tim Drake was a more thoughtful character, and I just took it from there. He'll never be overconfident and cocky and never secure in his job as Robin. And I'm putting the interview back on pause and say, you know what, that's actually a really good point. That is, I think, one of the more striking differences between Tim and his predecessors, and God knows his successors, is the fact that Tim was always a little bit more deliberate in what he did. He very rarely rushed into a situation half-cocked. He generally had a plan, or even if he didn't have a plan, he had he had an understanding of the situation, or at least he had an idea of how to win. And 
that's the kind of thing that I think Batman would not only look for, but would go out of his way to cultivate in any partner that he had. And obviously kind of a lost cause with Jason Todd, but I think it would be fair to say that Tim learned from Jason's mistakes and took those lessons very close to heart. So the interviewer asks, what's the formula for turning a sidekick into a star? And Dixon responds, I hated Robin when I was a kid, but years later I realized that all my favorite Batman stories had Robin in them. When they handed me the miniseries and it was up to me to turn Tim Drake into Robin, I decided to make a Robin that I liked. When you think about it, the last thing Batman needs is a boy hostage, someone that he has to worry about all the time. I wanted to put all those fears into Tim Drake's head. I think he's the first Robin who thinks that Batman will someday take the costume back. Tim is one of those rare characters who I think one day will say, why am I doing this? And quit forever. He's too damn sensible and not as driven. And honestly, here again, I think this is really just a matter of opinion, I suppose, but I think I disagree with Dixon once again. To me, Tim Drake is eventually going to become Batman. Tim is the last Robin that Bruce Wayne, this is my headcanon, you understand, but Tim Drake is the last Robin that Bruce Wayne is ever going to have. Bruce, at some point in Tim's future, is he's going to step down, he's going to retire, because I think he's the one who's eventually going to come to his senses and realize, you know what? My parents are fucking dead, but they loved me. My parents loved me. And they, not only would they not have wanted this life for me, I think they would be horrified that I chose this life. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to step down. I'm going to give up being Batman. I'm going to marry some Selena Kyle, I guess. That's the one I keep coming back to anyway. I'm going to marry Selena. And I'm moving away. You know, maybe I'm going to go to France. Or uh, maybe maybe I'm going to move to uh, Montana. Fuck, I don't know. But he's not staying in Gotham City. Okay? This we all know. Bruce, someday, in his 40s or his 50s, he's going to think, you know what? My parents wouldn't have wanted this life for me. I've made a difference. I've saved this city zillions of times over. It's time for me to have something for myself. He's going to get married. He's going to live somewhere, not Gotham City. He's going to move the fuck away from anything that has anything to do with superheroes or saving the world or capes or any of that shit. He and Selena are going to settle the fuck down. One of the things that really works for me about The Dark Knight Rises is Bruce coming to his senses and between The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises, Bruce Wayne gave up being Batman. Now, you could say that he gave up being Batman for the wrong reasons, and I would certainly agree with that, but he gave up being Batman. And it was really fate or circumstance or just fucking whatever that sort of compelled him to take take up the cowl once again. But at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, 
at the end of the movie, he willingly gives up being Batman once again, except this time, I think, for the right reasons. He's at peace with himself now at the end of The Dark Knight Rises, and it's a, na a very natural and, I would say, very organic decision for Bruce to have made. He's, he's going to marry Selina. They're both going to use that super-duper magic program that wipes both of them out of, off of the internet. And they can live the rest of their lives just fucking wherever in obscurity and live happily ever after. And I find that just such a fucking believable conclusion for Bruce Wayne that to me, it's one of those things that's like you you don't even really need to justify it too much. But anyways, so so there's that. But Gotham City, as Bruce Wayne is doing all of this. Gotham City still needs somebody, and I think that's going to be Tim's. That's going to be Tim's time to shine. You know, I think it's Tim who's going to step up to the plate, and not as Robin. He's going to pick up as Batman right where Bruce is leaving off. But the difference is, he's not going to be an angry and vengeful Batman. This is. I think Tim is going to be a bit more of a virtuous, uh, heroic, swashbuckling kind of Batman. And this is going to be a Batman that I think is a lot more centered, a lot more balanced, and I would say a lot more psychologically healthy. I think Tim Drake is going to continue fighting crime because he knows that this is something that he's good at. And Batman serves a purpose. You know, there is a function in Gotham City that Batman performs that I think Tim is going to be very sensitive to. And he's going to be very well, very well aware of the fact that Batman does things, Batman has a rep, Batman has a credibility that Robin does not and can never have. And I think Tim is the heir apparent to the crown. You know, he's the guy that's going to pick up wherever it is that Bruce is leaving off. And so that's just, that's, that's me. That's how I see things going. Like in my private biography of the end of all these characters. That's how I see things playing out. So, anyways. Let's see. What else? What else? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here we go. This is on page 77. Uh, the interviewer says, Your single most noteworthy contribution to the Batman mythos is arguably the introduction of Bane. What was the inspiration for that character? And Dixon answers that. I argued that it was a mistake to try to create a new villain, or sorry, a new major villain from whole cloth, because there was no guarantee the readers would like him. The best villains are created by accident. So Denny gave me the job of creating him because I was the most skeptical. At that time, his genesis, meaning Bane, his genesis was as an evil Doc Savage, intellectually and physically superior to Batman, whose only downfall was that he was out of his mind as the victim of a bad childhood. I wanted, to, I wanted to have him born in prison to make him alien to our culture and took it from there. Uh, the interviewer goes on to say, Bane seemed to gain immediate, uh, immediate popularity with fans. Azrael, on the other hand, really alienated almost everyone when he took over as Batman. And Dixon says, we did our job way too well on Azrael. We didn't want the readers to like him, and we made sure of that in a big way. 
Halfway through NightQuest, I was thinking, I can't wait until Batman takes this punk down. The letters were passionate. Some of them were abusive, some even scary. And uh, I remember some of the... Re I mean, I, I think DC in the 90s when they were printing letters from uh, that they got from NightQuest, I think they were selective about the letters that they printed. Mar not like nobody, like DC, DC takes a distant second place to Marvel when it comes to cherry picking letters. I mean, guys, Marvel bows to nobody when it comes to cherry picking uh, letters, like fan letters in the 90s and only printing the really nice ones and all that. Because guys, they, they printed letters that I'm, in fact, you know what, some of them, some of the letters that they printed, I'm not even convinced are even real letters. I think some of those may be shit that some assistant editor typed up himself because there's no fucking way that the feedback to the Clone Saga was as positive as the letters column of any average issue of Amazing Spider-Man, okay? I don't fucking buy it. But even so, I think DC was just about as... Well, not just about. They were still pretty selective about the letters that they printed. But man, the shit people were saying about NightQuest in my LCS back when those issues were coming out, I get the idea sometimes that it's like people didn't realize that Look, guys, this whole bit of business with Azrael and him taking over as Batman and all this NightQuest stuff, guys, this is not a status quo. This is a story that's being told. And there's an argument that NightQuest went on <laughs> way too long. I'm sensitive to those arguments. I understand those arguments. I think those arguments are very valid, very lucid. I even agree. To, a, to some extent. I even agree. But at the end of the day, NightQuest was just a story, and I don't know that fans were necessarily sensitive to that back in the 90s. And so, anyway, I guess what I'm trying to say, though, is that, yeah, I can believe that some of those letters were just a wee bit scary that they were getting as a result of Night Night Quest, I I, I can believe that because my memory of Reign of the Supermen is most people knew that this was just a story. Most people knew that sooner or later the one true Superman was coming back. Most people understood that these four guys who are to varying degrees claiming to be Superman, a none of them are the real deal, and b. The real deal is coming back sooner or later. Sooner, I think. But either way, this is this state of affairs cannot last forever. And indeed it didn't. It was only like four months. So whatever you want to make of that. So anyway, let's see here. Yeah, some image stuff, some zero hour stuff. Yeah, you know, I think that pretty much taps it out on this Chuck Dixon article. This is pretty much Yeah, I guess that's I guess that's basically it. So, let's see. 
What else? Oh, wait, what am I saying? I don't even know why I'm trying to cast about here looking for something new to talk about in this issue of Wizard. There's the cover story. And, guys, this is this this cover story, this is on, uh, th this begins on uh, page 28. It's entitled Voices of a Generation. And it's an interview with Scott Campbell and Brandon Choi, the artist and writer, respectively, of Gen 13. And this is, I don't want to say it's a puff piece, but this is a, it's a bit of a, introduction to the ongoing Gen 13 series that it, it, it either started this month or, or else it would be starting soon. I forget, but it was something like that. I don't know, but basically it would, it's not very far away. If it didn't come out this same month, the same month as this issue of Wizard, it came out in very fucking short order. So anyway, but this is basically sort of a, I guess a primer on what Gen 13 is all about. Now, that could seem a little whatever these days because we live in a time and in a place when whatever comic book you're looking for, like in terms of new stuff, for the most part, you can find it. For the most part, it's going to be pretty easy. And for the most part, you're probably not going to have, well, in a completely relative sense, you're not going to have to, or tell you what, here's a good way to say it. You're not going to have to pay all that much relative to the cover price. Huh? Does that work for you? So, easy to find. Won't cost very much relative to whatever price is printed on the cover. Guys, that was not necessarily the case for comics back in, back in the 90s. And so... For me, I was able to read issues of Gen 13, not even the entire miniseries, but just issues of Gen 13 that friends of mine were able to get. And so I was extremely intrigued with this book. Couldn't fucking find the miniseries, okay? Or if I could, couldn't fucking afford the miniseries. And so, uh, and I don't think that I think it was quite a while, actually, before a, I don't, in fact, you know what? I don't know that a trade paperback of the Gen 13 miniseries has ever been published, but if it was, I don't think it was for quite some time. So all in all, it was, it, 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 it was just a different time. And so this article is actually a really good introduction. It just kind of gives you the broad strokes of what happened in the miniseries. There are, there are these five teenagers they have powers. Here's why they have powers. And they're kind of, sort of, on the run in a way, but not really. And so that's the status quo. And here's what's going to be coming in the first couple of issues of this brand spanking new ongoing series that should be very easy to find, very reasonably priced, and sure as anything else, fucking cool art to look at. So, and that's basically the... So I, basically what I'm trying to do is... I'm trying to find a way to not call this thing a puff piece, but it is, let's face it, a little bit of a puff piece. So one of the things, though, that really struck me when I was reading this this feature back when this issue of Wizard first came out. Um, well, actually, first, I want to get another sip off my Coke here. And what the hell, some more vape. 
All right. Yeah, so the part that really struck me... Let's see it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Here it is. Um, this is less of an interview, and this is actually more like an article that has quotes from Brandon Choi and J. Scott Campbell in it. But, yeah, here, here we go. As for his, uh, his particular characters, Campbell notes, In issue number two, I have a scene where grunge and burnout are skateboarding. I'm trying to get that whole culture, to dress them in the right kind of look and do their hair right. I want that age group to identify with these kids, doing the same kind of stuff and listening to the same kind of music that they do. And I'm probably going to get the other pieces of this article. But when I was a kid, I mean, that was one of the things that really struck, that really struck me, right? Because having read issue number two many, many times as I have, yeah, that is what kids my age and a little bit older, that, that's what they look like. That's how they dressed. I don't know. I mean, I, as I remember that skateboard scene from Gen 13 number two, which I do plan to talk about on this show someday. I don't know when, but someday. What I remember of the dialogue in that, that skateboarding scene from the second issue, the, the dialogue is a little bit try-hard. I don't remember people... I mean, it's... This is very much... I'm an adult trying to imagine how these young whippersnappers talk. And I don't think it's completely successful. Sometimes it is. There are other scenes and other Gen 13 comics where this kind of teenage dialogue that that gets tossed around is actually... That was what people talked like, at least back then. That, that skateboard scene in particular, though, less so. But it's like... What... Yeah, I, the dialogue might be kind of off in terms of authenticity, but what is completely, totally right is the look and the mood, and I would even say somewhat the attitude, but the fashion, the music, all of it. That is everything that it meant to be a teenager back in 1995. Like, every now and then you come across something with... It's sort of like a window into the younger generation. And just to kind of give you, I guess, sort of a parallel, for those of you who have seen the original Bad News Bears, people that I knew who were kids back in the 70s, they all point back to that scene at the hot dog stand where, where the kids get in a fist fight, and they say, yep, that's what it was. That scene is everything that it meant to be a teenager back in the 70s. And for me, that skateboarding scene, it's not like every kid everywhere was skateboarding and listening to Soundgarden. I don't mean that. But I mean, I just, I look at that and I think, ah, my generation, you know? And uh, that sort of lower spectrum Gen X, upper spectrum millennial, and just that sort of crossover between the two that for some reason no one ever fucking talks about, but nevertheless is very real. You know, and it's like, ah, my generation, you know, and that, that's who we were. And 
it's one of the few times that I can remember picking up a comic book and thinking, yep, that is who we are, you know? Now, just keep in mind, I never owned, like, a Nirvana t-shirt, ever, even now. I never skateboarded. I never did any of that. But I had those friends, all right? I knew them from school. I would see them, you know? And so, you know, no, it's not especially true of me, but there's still this authenticity to that scene that I think is very real. And honestly, I think one of the... Because I was collecting a, a lot of comics about teenagers back in the 90s, one of the things that I that I remembered noticing very early on is that Chuck Dixon, when he was writing Robin, he tended to get the emotions right. You know, just the confusion and the mixed upness of everything. Like, you don't know what the fuck you're doing, but you're having to fake it most of the time. And he got that very well. Now, here again, the dialogue wasn't very authentic. It was just sort of meat and potatoes, very workman, very functional dialogue. It served the purpose that it needed to serve in the scene, but it didn't try to go for this uh, kind of authentic teenage lingo type thing. You know, Dixon just tried to write very functional dialogue, and I think, honestly, his comics are the better for it, at least in my opinion. But that isn't... There's a kind of generic quality to the, to the way that everybody talked and how they looked and everything. The emotion of it was 100% perfectly, absolutely on point. Wouldn't change a thing. But everything else, less so. Whereas at times with Gen 13, I didn't necessarily always buy into the emotion. I did buy into the atmosphere. I did buy into the fashion. I did buy into, at times, the dialogue in terms of, you know, how it sounded. Again, the skateboarding scene is not a good example, but in the main, I think Brandon Troy actually did a pretty good job of that. But it was sometimes the emotions of things that I just didn't think was eh, on the mark, necessarily. Then as now, you know. Whereas Dixon writing Robin, it was basically the total inverse. And so, anyway, I don't know. It's, uh, you know, whatever. It's... I always just thought, to me, there's no real reason for this, but to me, I always kind of regarded Chuck Dixon's run on Robin, and specifically the ongoing Gen 13 uh, series from the the mid-90s. I always kind of viewed them as fellow travelers in their their own peculiar sort of way. To me, it would have felt weird as a comic book fan reading one, but not reading the other. So, I don't know. Whatever, whatever you want to make of that. So, uh, let's see. What else? What else? What else? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is, I guess, who is this? Campbell? I guess this, yeah, I guess this is Campbell. Uh, he, uh, basically, the kind of, well, fuck it. The uh, article says, Characterization and relationships were a large part of what made Gen 13 so popular, and it's referring here to the miniseries. Characterization and relationships were a large part of what made Gen 13 so popular, and there's something that Campbell would like to continue using. For example, expect some friction between uh, team members, as living together is not as much fun as it might have seemed, but the creators won't just dwell on the negatives. Uh, Quote, 
There will definitely be more with free fall and grunge, he says. I assume this is Campbell, he says, because that's something we started from the very beginning and want to keep it going. I kind of want it to be that kind of mood light or moonlighting or cheers type of relationship. I don't think it's a driving force of the book, but I think it's a nice little element that makes the book what it is. And I tend to agree with that. You know, I'm putting the article on pause. I tend to agree with that. The One of the things that I always sort of liked about Gen 13 as a title was the that kind of ambiguous relationship between grunge and freefall where they weren't really together, but they weren't not together. You know, they, they were perpetually stuck in that kind of bizarre middle step between being attracted to somebody and actually being in a relationship with somebody. And honestly, I mean, what I remember of being a teenager, that was a very, maybe it's just I was a melodramatic teenager, I don't know. But I remember that was always, uh, it was a very exciting phase to be in, you know? You're not officially with this person yet, but you both know where this is going, and eventually you're, you're going to start up together, you know? You both know that, but you're not quite there yet, you know? And I loved that that was where uh, grunge and freefall were with each other. Now, just to be fair, I mean, you can't stick with that for decade after decade. I mean, the whole thing about moonlighting is that sooner or later, you do have to pay that off. And so whether it's the characters deciding to go for it or they are deciding, you know what? No, we're not doing this. Or maybe... It becomes a love triangle. I mean, I don't know. But sooner or later, you, you can't... I guess my point is you can't depend on that. You can't have that going in perpetuity. But it's like at the same rate, you can get a lot of dramatic poten- potential out of that. You can get a lot of funny moments in different scenes with, with that type of approach. And I just really like it, you know, because so much of uh, Gen 13, they're right. It does come down to relationships. You had this kind of... It's not exactly like a, a, a father-daughter thing between Fairchild and Lynch, but Fairchild, without question, is the most adult member of the team, and it makes sense that she would be Lynch's vice-regent. But it's like at the same time, they, they always did have a sort of interesting kind of interplay with each other. They're not equals. They're not really partners. They're not really friends. And again, they're not... It's not really like a father-daughter dynamic either. You know, they just they just always had this weird sort of indefinable association with each other. Neither one ever really had authority over the other. And, you know, Lynch is... He's basically just trying to keep everybody alive, right? All he wants to do is make sure that nobody dies here. And Fairchild, for her, for her own part, she's rational, she's level-headed, she's obviously the leader of the team. You know, she would be the leader of the team even if there was another candidate on the team to be the leader. I think I, I think she would still be the leader. She's just clearly the best choice. Now, as it happens, I think the other the other team members set the bar pretty low. 
but nevertheless, she's obviously the best choice to be the team leader. Nobody questions that. Nobody disputes that. That's where she belongs. But it's like at the same time, she doesn't necessarily take her marching orders from Lynch. And Lynch doesn't necessarily take his marching orders from her. And I always just like that, that dynamic between the two of them, you know? And then, of course, uh, Burnout and Rainmaker. Well, we all know about that. So uh, it's just all in all, it's the way that these different characters associate with each other. I just, I always liked it. Because, again, I mean, you know, Grunge and Fairchild, I don't remember that being like a major element of, of this series. But they did have, even that, it was its own uh, peculiar sort of, eh. I, I try to think of it as the patient, intelligent, and probably honor roll schoolgirl trying to deal with the class clown, you know? And it's like, how does she explain to the class clown that he's annoying the fuck out of her using words that are small enough for him to understand. And that was always, I at least, well, not always, but at least to start with, kind of an, an interesting way of eh, encapsulating perhaps the, the relationship, such as it was, that Fairchild and Grunge had with each other. You know, this, uh, they're not really, fr they're, First off, they're not romantically involved. Second off, they're not even really friends. They're barely teammates. It's just like fate has put the two of them under the same roof. And you get the idea that Fairchild is ever so patiently trying to make the best of it. So, anyway. I, you know what? I, yeah, I, at some point, I don't know when, but at some point, yeah, I am definitely gonna talk about the Gen 13 ongoing series so it's just, honestly, I don't, I don't think I have all that many issues from it anymore. And those, they're, they're not available on digital, not really. And so, or at least not legally anyways, and I don't want to go illegal. And so I'm not really sure what I want to do here. I haven't really, I don't know. I haven't really figured it out. So anyway, so let's see. Flipping around through here a little bit. What else? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know where I'm going. Hold on. Yep, here it is. All right. So this, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that right here, this is on page 46. This is this is a, an article, or actually, I think it's actually a column called uh, Manga Scene. And... Basically, what it endeavors to do is ex explain what exactly manga and anime are to American audiences. Now, if you're under the age of, I would say, 25 or 30, that may seem kind of strange to you. How the fuck do you not know what this is? Well, guys, what you need to remember is manga, anime, and all that stuff... Those things have not been that they have not always been mainstays in American geekdom. All right, they just haven't. All right, uh, I mean, at this point, we're closing in on almost not quite, but almost twenty-five years. So you can't exactly call it a recent phenomenon, but it's like at the same time, it hasn't always been like this either. You know, 
So columns like this that can be a little bit didactic and a little bit repeat after me, it may seem a little whatever these days, but you need to remember that there was a time when drawing an American comic book starring American comic book characters in a kind of manga-influenced style was a very fucking avant-garde idea, guys. I mean, or for that matter, even reading manga. I mean, I remember when, even before this issue came out, I was familiar with shit. For some reason, the only thing that I can remember in terms of manga is Ranma One Half. I mean, I... God... I know there was other stuff out there besides that, but for some reason that's the only thing that's coming to mind, so fuck it, that's what I'm sticking with. I, I, I was familiar with stuff like that, I'd even seen it, and hell, even read some of it, and you know what, wasn't half bad either, but it's like at the same time, it wasn't always like this. So that's just something you want to be, or I mean, hell, for that matter, one of the things, just to kind of tie it on back to that feature I was reading just a little while ago, J. Scott Campbell, one of the things that made his artwork just such a fucking breath of fresh air was the kind of manga influence that he had. I think a little bit, I mean, look, it's not completely foreign, especially at Wildstorm, especially in the early 90s, early to mid 90s, to have a kind of manga influenced style, because I think there, there, that's always been kind of an element of Jim Lee's style. But it's like at the same time, it's, 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 I think, kind of a relatively minor element. J. Scott Campbell brought a little bit more of a manga sort of influence to his work, as is evident in some of the uh, camera angles that he would use or the shape of some of the characters' eyes and all that stuff. So it's not something that American audiences were completely unfamiliar with. I'm just saying it's not... It was not then as ubiquitous as it is now. So, hopefully that all makes sense. Now I'm going to get a, another couple of sips off my Coke here. Yeah, I'm thinking it's probably going to be time to change the coil in my e-cig because this is starting to taste a little bit funky. I mean, it's okay if you take just one drag uh, off of the vapor. It's fine. But whenever you hit it like three times in a row like I just did uh, and, and take three drags in uh, quick su uh, succession with one another you start noticing a little bit more of like this kind of burning taste or it's something, I don't know. It defies description, but anyway, so it's probably just about time to change the coil, I would imagine. So anyway, now moving right along, there were a lot of seismic, seismic things that happened in the 90s in comics that Marvel, I mean, let's face it, Marvel was at the dead center of, all right? you You really can't, talk about comics in the 90s without talking about just what a clusterfuck Marvel was. So I'm going to start at the bottom of the list as it goes for 
April, or actually, I guess technically this would be February of 1995, but fuck it, April of 1995, as per the cover date of this issue of Wizard. This is in the news section, this is on page 20. It says, Marvel reduces editorial staff. That's the headline. And the actual news story says, Marvel Comics announced that it would be refocusing its line by eliminating a number of slower-moving, less profitable titles in order to channel more editorial, creative, production, sales, and promotional resources into Marvel's bestsellers and industry favorites, the company announced in a press release. Unfortunately, conceded Terry Stewart, president and COO of Marvel Comics, reducing slower titles means we'll be reducing some positions in editorial and related departments. While, quote, specific changes to Marvel's lineup will be announced as they are made, unquote, reports of layoffs include the following, and it lists off a bunch of different names. Shit, one of which is Evan Skolnick. Shit, I never knew that. Wow, he got fired from Marvel. That must have really sucked. Well, no, actually, no, it says he was let go as associate editor, but it says that Skolnick would continue writing New Warriors. Oh, that's, that's good. I always liked Evan Skolnick. Anyway, uh, article goes uh, goes on to say, according to the to one of the dismissed staffers, the five editors in chief and other department heads were given a headcount, and the choice of who to let go was left up to them. Work performance was reportedly never mentioned, and the layoffs were attributed to downsizing. No offers of lateral movement were made. Those laid off were offered career counseling, which included discussions of networking and a promise of 100 free resumes. The firings, and it just sort of goes on from there. Uh, but uh, Insiders reported a feeling of panic, quote-unquote, around Marvel for months, describing the morale as the worst they had ever seen at any company. Holy fuck. Wow. Wow. All right. So, and let's see what, oh, and it goes on to say, approximately 30, 30 fucking titles. Holy fuck. Fuck! Approximately 30 titles are expected to be canceled, and more layoffs are rumored to be planned. No confirmation was given as to which titles would be terminated. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm pretty sure we could take a guess on that, so... Huh. So, all right. Oh, and this is something else I just want to kind of shine a light on. Uh, that's, uh, that news story, that's on page 20. Uh, but this bit of business over here, this is on page 21 right next to that news story. This is a, this is an ad for a, a, a Vampirella trading card set from Tops, And you remember trading cards? <laughs> I do. So anyway, but one of the trading cards that's advertised in this, well, ad is uh, it's a, it's a picture of a model who kind of look kind of sort of looks like Shannon Doherty's older hotter sister or sorry younger hotter sister and um wow like basically she 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 was a model for for Vampirella my understanding is that Harris Comics or Warren or whoever the fuck was publishing Vampirella in the 90s they basically hired her as the, basically as their booth babe you remember booth babes you remember like when comics gave enough of a shit about their their titles and their characters that if when not necessarily for everything but at certain times they would hire basically these models today we would call it cosplay uh 
they would hire these models to cosplay at at uh, cons and basically hang out right next to whoever's booth. Like I guess, uh, yeah, Harris Comics. So in in this case, this model would would hang out right outside of Harris Comics booth at San Diego or just where the fuck ever. And her job was to stand there, be hot, all dolled up as uh, Vampirella. And back in, and back in the nineties, guys, it's like look costumes for female characters they they were actual costumes and so cosplaying as these characters was <laughs> a challenge whereas female characters these days by design a lot of female characters in comics nowadays they wear costumes that are very easy to create yourself basically DC and I would say to a greater extent Marvel they want their female characters to be easy to cosplay as. Instead of creating uh, interesting characters or getting people all hyped up because of badass art or just whatever else, what, what Marvel seems to want is to be kind of a lifestyle brand. And so in relation to that, what they do is they create these uh, these female characters that in the main have costumes that are very easy for girls to make and so i mean i don't know I, it seems like if, if the objective is to get more girls cosplaying as these characters then yeah i guess i guess it makes sense i guess it's successful so anyway one kind of interesting thing about this ad though again this is on page 21 um you know you get the you get the vampirella logo and then it says uh super premium trading cards and then you get all this you know, blur this kind of blurby stuff, like who it is that's going to be drawing it, you know, Frank Frazetta, Adam Hughes, Mike Kaluta, blah, 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 blah. And then at the very bottom, it says coming in Feb something. The year in which this is supposed to be coming out is covered by a tops, a heart-shaped uh, tops logo. So it says coming in Feb. That's it. And so, what the fuck? It, it, it's almost enough to make me wonder, like, did this trading card set get delayed by a year or something? And that's why they want to cover up the year in which this is coming out. Because they realize, oh shit, we can't have this stuff out in time for February of 1995. Yeah, fuck it. Let's have them out in February of 1996. Yeah, that's the ticket. So, I don't know. Um, so, let's see. I'm going to flip around here. Um... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's the other thing to do with Marvel. You remember how I said just a second ago that Marvel is... It's basically through the 90s, Marvel is basically a clusterfuck. Like, I would say Marvel... I, honestly, it's it's up for grabs. Was Marvel worse in the 90s in terms of business decisions? Was Marvel worse in the 90s than it is today? I don't know, guys. You could argue that either way. Because on page 17, this was fucking huge all right i remember when this happened the guys people were fucking quaking in their boots over this page 17 in the news section uh the headline says marvel's heroes world purchase leads to industry questions and so basically the long and the short of this thing is that marvel bought this little rinky dink piece of shit uh a comic book distribution company called heroes world and people were kind of wondering, you know, like, what does this mean? Is is Marvel 
going to uh, distribute all of their comics exclusively through Heroes World? Because, guys, everyone kind of figured what this meant, at least for Heroes World. Maybe Marvel is going to be exclusive to Heroes World, but we already know Heroes World is going to be exclusively Marvel. So this affects other publishers in as much as they probably can't distribute their comics through Heroes World anymore, which honestly, whatever. I mean, Heroes World was just this little rinky-dink piece of shit little comic book distribution company that in and of itself, nobody gave a shit about. I mean, back in the 90s, it was all about Diamond and it was really all about Capital City. Those were the two biggies, all right? So for Marvel to make this weird turn like this and buy out Heroes World, like of all the companies you could possibly buy, why would you choose that one? I would have thought that the more obvious company to buy, if it's not going to be Diamond, and maybe Marvel couldn't have afforded Diamond, I don't know, but if it's not going to be Diamond, why not Capital City? I mean, they weren't as big as Diamond, but they were, they were, uh, people tend to forget this, Capital City Comics was a legit competitor to Diamond, you know, so why didn't you guys, why didn't you Marvel people buy capital city like why not what was so amazing about heroes world i mean they didn't have a very big footprint they weren't super well known in the industry it, it was basically just this little uh posted stamp sized uh comic book dis distribution company that most people had never heard of most people didn't care about you know and let's it's to this day i i don't get this but everyone kind of knew that Heroes World was going to be exclusively Marvel. Now, did that mean in turn that Marvel was going to be exclusively Heroes World? We already kind of figured, you know, if Marvel's going to go to all the trouble of buying Heroes World, there's no way in fuck that Heroes World is going to continue distributing DC Comics. I mean, this we all know. So the big question on everybody's lips, will Marvel eventually set it up such that they are exclusive now to Heroes World. Meaning, if you want to... If you want Marvel Comics, the only place you can go is Heroes World. And there was a lot of fear about that. But there's also just the reality of the situation that Heroes World, at least to start with, my understanding was they, they distributed DC, Marvel, and Image for sure. And I think Dark Horse as well. Now, anything besides that, I don't know, but... My understanding was basically the big four, or the big two, and then the other two. They Heroes World distributed all of them. Now, I don't know how big their footprint... Actually, I guess, was Malibu the fourth? I don't remember. The fucking whoever the big four, or whoever the top four were back in the 90s. My understanding that Heroes World distributed all of those comics for certain, but I don't remember if they distributed much else. But the fact is, they were not a big distribution company. And so, nevertheless, the effect of Marvel buying Heroes World means that Heroes World will, will only distribute Marvel. So that means if you publish at Image, DC, Dark Horse, Malibu, just fucking wherever, well, now you can't use Heroes World anymore. We already know this. And so that by itself is, is going to have some kind of an effect on the industry. It's going to be something more than nothing. Whatever it is, it's more than nothing. So the big fear that everyone has now that Heroes World is exclusively Marvel, is Marvel going to go exclusive to Heroes World? There was a lot of fear about that. 
And as it turns out, the fear was very much justified, but that never really comes out in this, at the time of this issue, that hadn't really yet become an issue, but anyway, uh, yeah, here we go. There was a lot of speculation about this is the point. Will Marvel, this is the news story, will Marvel Entertainment uh, Entertainment Group's January acquisition of a distribution company, namely Heroes World, change the way that comics are distributed? And, you know, spoiler alert, the answer is yes. Article goes on to say, the acquisition led to speculation throughout the industry as to Marvel's distribution plans, but Ivan Snyder, Hero, uh, Heroes World president, told Wizard that there are no immediate plans to change the, distribu uh, the distributor's relationship with other publishers. Yeah, that didn't last. We plan to continue operating on an ongoing basis. We plan to expand operations, becoming a national and international distributor, and are currently working toward that goal. Asked specifically if those plans include possibly acquiring another regional distributor, Marvel Comics president uh, Terry Stewart said, We are not presently considering another distributor. Marvel has long been rumored to be unhappy with the direct market system and the company's relationship with distributors. Now, that is true, actually. My understanding is that at one point there was some kind of bad... I never figured out what it was, but there was some kind of bad blood going on between... Uh, Marvel's executive management and Capital City's executive management. And I think basically the, the comic book bust uh, that started in 1993, my understanding was that was a huge factor in it, but I've never really been able to find anyone who was knowledgeable about the situation who could speak more authoritatively to it. But my understanding is there was some kind of bad blood between Marvel management and Capital City management. So anyway... <clears throat> uh, article goes on to say, Larry Martyr, speaking for Image Comics, said, I think Marvel is saying the direct sales market is a level playing field that has evolved over the last 15 years, and quite frankly, we think a levy, a, a, we, meaning Marvel, quite frankly, we think a level playing field is unfair to Marvel. They'd like everything to slant their way. Most other publishers refuse to comment except to offer congratulations. And I've got no real interest in that. Let's see. Moving right along, it says, Industry insiders believed that Marvel was poised to announce that Marvel Comics would be exclusively distributed through Heroes World, and DC was set to respond with its own exclusive agreement. But no official announcements came at IADD. You know what? That's, that's probably enough. That's probably enough of that. You get the idea. The, the fact is... You know what? Actually, no, there is a little bit more. Jeff Smith, the uh, creator of Bone, uh, Jeff Smith actually had something to say about this. He says, uh, I think the 30% of the market that is independently published is being forgotten about in all the scenarios being discussed. Overall, I think it's too early to panic because I don't know what the other major publishers have to gain by stiffing Diamond or Capital. Well, Jeff, look, far be it from me to tell a comic book publisher what's what, but it's like, how do you not see this? It's like, if Marvel goes exclusive to Heroes World, basically Heroes World is going to be in a position, at least in theory, to set something less than favorable terms uh, for distributing Marvel Comics. Like, if you want to stock Marvel Comics in your store, bitch, you better do things our way. And what is their way? 
Who knows? Now, as it turns out, Marvel ended up going fucking bankrupt before any of this could really boil over. So who's to say where things might have gone? But I'm not going to sit here and pretend that that Marvel was necessarily prepared to operate on the up and up. Because guys, look, this is the same company, Marvel. This is the same company that bought the Ultraverse, not because they wanted it. They bought it because DC was uh, showing interest in buying the, the Ultraverse, and there were conversations that were being had about that. And apparently somebody at Marvel got wind of that. And what they realized is, holy shit. If DC buys the Ultraverse, overnight DC becomes the biggest publisher in, in American comics. And motherfucker, we are not going to let that happen. We are not going to let that happen. So by hook, by crook, by whatever else, we are going to buy the Ultraverse, not because we want it, not because we have a plan for these characters, not because we even give a shit about these characters. It's because we don't want DC to have it. That is how fucking petty Marvel was. Now, I'm not going to name names. Because what's the point in digging up the past? But I've got it on very good authority that DC actually did have plans. I mean, you're not going to draw like detailed uh, steps on, on, on what you're going to do until you have your prize in hand. But there was a kind of a rough basic plan for the Ultraverse characters and what, they, and what DC was going to do with them. After the hypothetical DC buyout of the Ultraverse was complete. Now, obviously the DC buyout of the Ultraverse never fucking happened. But people did kind of have a, a few ideas on how to go about uh, using those Ultraverse characters. And I, what I think, knowing DC back in the 90s probably would have been a pretty cool way. I mean, we'll never know. No one seems to know what those plans are other than they existed. So, but like I say, Marvel found out about that and said, fuck that, we're not having that, and they bought Ultraverse just to be fucking assholes. Just because they, you know, damn it, they're number one, and that's their fucking birthright, that they're entitled to that, and they will suffer no pretenders. So, anyway. That's, you know what? I, 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 I think before I call it a day on this episode, I just want to flip through... Because Wizard used to get fan mail, too. They would print uh, reader mail at times. Or at, at times. Uh, they would print it in every issue. And sometimes that that their their uh, letters column could be kind of interesting. Again, it's kind of Reddit tier at times. But, you know, it's, it could still be pretty funny. And unlike Reddit, this is legit edgy. So, let's see. This is crap. 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 More crap. Crap. Make a crap. Oh. All right. <laughs> all right. All right. Now this looks kind of interesting. Okay. Yeah. All right. This is uh. It, this is in the uh, letters column, right? Magic words, page seven. The This is a letter sent in by a supposed reader 
and we'll, you'll find out why I'm using the word supposed there. But anyway, uh, by a supposed reader, and it says, Dear Wizard, my boyfriend is an avid reader of Marvel Comics and Image Comics, so I'm constantly exposed to them and given the opportunity to read them. I have one complaint. I'm sick and tired of seeing gro grotesque... Ugh. I'm sick and tired of seeing grotesquely over-exaggerated, over-developed breasts with perky nipples on women with waists smaller than the average woman's wrist and thong bikinis wedged so far up their rear ends that their cheeks would be clapping so loudly together it would sound like a standing ovation at a Whitney Houston concert. God, that is... Oh, God. Yeah, I remember that. Oh, wow. Oh, I want to get a sip off of my Coke for this one. This is going to be great. Early onset, third wave feminism. And here we are, boy. Here it goes. This next part of the letter. Hello, 2015. You remember this? Why can't women be drawn the way real women are? You don't have to be five foot nine with 38 double D breasts at 15 inch waist and 34 inch hips to be beautiful, smart, or powerful. Jeez. Fucking harpy. Maybe it's time to start drawing women realistically and stop degrading and offending them. I think you would be surprised at the amount of women who would start buying more comics and appreciate uh, appreciate them for how wonderfully they're written instead of thinking of them as porn because of the way they portray women. Signed, Lisa Craig, Los Angeles, California. And fuck you, Lisa Craig. Jeez. I mean, God, this is one letter that has just not aged well at all. I mean, guys, what is... Th just think about it now, guys, and, and be honest... All right, be honest. What is ground zero for SJW Marvel? All right, what is the premier book, the, the poster girl for SJW Marvel in the current year? What is it? We all know who it is. It's Squirrel Girl. And guys, Squirrel Girl is this sort of just kind of squat, dumpy, buck-tooth, just kind of retard-looking character. I remember there was a time when Squirrel Girl was actually kind of a fun, kind of cool little character, and now she's just a fucking freak, and she looks weird and all lumpy and potato-shaped, and it's like that... It's like it doesn't seem to matter how many, how many times that book fails. It doesn't seem to matter how many times the sales tank. It doesn't seem to matter how much people clearly and repeatedly show they don't fucking care about this comic, dude. It just keeps coming back, baby. Every year or every two years, every just however, it keeps coming back, man. And Marvel has never been able to make a successful book out of anything that has anything to do with, with Squirrel Girl. And yet, they she just keeps coming back. And you know what? She does look like a real woman, you know? And... 
God. You know, and you can just even kind of picture it. You know, Lisa Craig. You know, you, you see those women who are always going around in like those kind of legging kind of pants, you know, and what you notice after a while is that the women who wear those kinds of pants, those kind of like stretchy pants, either they're really, really fat or they start wearing those pants and then they get really, really fat. Well, the reason that they wear those pants is because they want to become complete and total fat asses and not have to feel bad about it or, for that matter, have to go out and buy new clothes. They can just put on the stretchy pants and everything's going to be just fine. And that's just kind of the way that I picture Lisa Craig. This is a... This is a chick who, basically, she's had several dozen too many Twinkies. And so she looks at uh, comic book art, and rightly or wrongly, she feels kind of shamed by it. And so rather than fixing her fucking diet, she wants to dictate my consumer choices to me. And honestly, like back in the 90s, people would say st stuff like this. It's just that fucking retarded. And you were allowed to say, that is the dumbest idea I have ever fucking heard. And it just, it wasn't a big deal. And so that's, that's kind of where we were when this issue was printed because the editor or whoever was handling the, the letters column for Wizard, he actually writes as, as a reply, not even a retort, just as a reply, he writes, comics are not a very realistic medium and are usually not drawn realistically. The male characters in comics rarely come out looking like real men themselves. Comics, by their very nature, demand idealized characters. Most guys don't have biceps that bulge like Captain America's. The inequity lies in the fact, by and large, the comic world has men drawing idealized men, and men also drawing idealized women. Thus, we get a bit of a skewed view. And even that is kind of a... Eh, that's kind of bullshitty, but, you know, look, whatever. The point is, guys, I have never picked up an issue of Batman or Superman or fucking whatever and looked at the uh, just super muscled up, uh, super idealized male bodies in those comics and thought, wow, they should draw comics that look more like lumpy middle-aged white guys. I fucking never said that, okay? Have never, would never. All right. It's for some reason. It's just it's always women because they never seem to mention uh, the the idealization of men. That never seems to be that never really seems to be like uh, much of a problem. And I'm operating on the assumption that people like Lisa Craig, it's like their vanity has reached a point of such critical mass that it has begun consuming itself. And so it's not enough that they're complete and total fatties. They need to be surrounded by complete and total fatties. They need to see nothing but complete and total fatties. Anything other than that is, it's just this, it's problematic. It's just this attack on them and their self-esteem. And look, guys, I mean, I'm a big believer in the, in, in the idea of, uh, well, whatever. You know what? I'm not even going to get it. I'll probably cross the line six or seven times over by now. All right. So uh, honestly, there's a whole because this is an issue of Wizard and it's like 200 and some odd pages long. So there's always something more to talk about. But I don't know. I think that pretty well sums it all up for this particular issue of Wizard. That's pretty much everything that I at least have got to say about it. It's um, overall, it's just this. I just I miss Wizard. I miss it. I, I miss when comics 
were important, when comics were worth getting excited about, when they were fun, the art was good, people gave a shit about the comics that they were making. If their comics uh, ever got canceled, then they weren't guaranteed a new title on either that same title or some other one that they could turn into their little fucking progressive agenda. I just, I just miss back, uh, I, I, I miss a time when comics were good and they strove to be good. And they strove to be fun and exciting and cool. And you just don't fucking get that anymore. Anyway, that's a, maybe a little bit of a Debbie Downer note <clears throat> on which to uh, end this episode. But uh, whatever, I mean, there it is. So uh, all in all, this is, a, this is just a great magazine, like in general. Wizard is a great magazine. I love it, I miss it. And uh, I wish we lived in a world where something like, where Wizard or something like it could exist and be relevant. But unfortunately, that's not this timeline. So anyway, but I think that's pro probably enough of Wizard. Now, as to next week, I'm not really completely sure what I want to talk about yet. I've got some ideas, but nothing's really set in stone. I got to tell you, all this stuff about Gen 13 has kind of made me think, maybe I need to talk about some Gen 13 comics you know, in the next couple of episodes. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I haven't really made up my mind. I'm not announcing anything. I'm saying I don't know. I bet, you know, that that is a possibility. But uh, anyway, either way, I think, that's, uh, I think that's pretty much it for me for this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. 
So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise! Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And, just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. everybody, Magnus here. Here at Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, I sometimes release episodes all about Smallville. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville. In my opinion, Smallville is the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history. Magnus Talks About Smallville is dedicated to the themes, story arcs, and character motivations of Smallville. I do a ton of in-depth analysis on each episode of the show, and people seem to love listening to me talk about Smallville. And I want you along for the ride. Check out Magnus Talks About Smallville, and listen for yourself about why Smallville is awesome. Magnus Talks About Smallville, only at 2
www.thepodcastnetwork.com.